This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. We made it to the end of the week. Now let's take a look back at the news that you need to know but might have missed from around Chicago and the rest of the state. We convened a panel of journalists to take us behind the week's headlines for our weekly news recap. Angela Rosa O'Toole is WBEZ's senior editor for politics and government. Quinn Myers covers the Wicker Park, Bucktown, and Westtown neighborhoods, as well as City Council for Block Club Chicago. And Simone Alisea is executive producer of CityCast Chicago. We started off by talking about the dispute over the Brighton Park migrant camp. I asked Quinn what Governor Pritzker was concerned about when he halted construction on the project earlier this week. Here's Quinn. I mean, this is a pretty shocking development that came down on Tuesday um, after reporters all over the city had spent uh, the weekend wrapping their head around the city's environmental report, which uh, had we all had to FOIA for, and that's a whole other part of this conversation, maybe. Um, but yeah, the governor's office put out a statement. They paused construction, and then a day later, they said um, they, uh, you know, the, the city's uh, report did not go far enough, and they were not sure that this could be a safe site to house up to two thousand migrants. Um, pretty much a bombshell, I guess. I, I think you think city, Mayor Johnson was caught off guard. I, a little bit, I do think so. I mean, the city had already progressed pretty substantially in terms of construction on this site. And, um, you know, they were supposed to house up to 2000 migrants. Um, and meanwhile, uh, city shelters are still overflowing with people. So this kind of creates a huge hole here for the city as, as where to continue to house people. So it was, it was surprising for sure. What was the mayor's reaction? Um, you know, he said that it kind of got tense pretty quickly. You know, they didn't get proper guidelines from the state and they was taken off guard. Um, the governor's office came back pretty quickly with a statement that said uh, the city did not engage with the IEPA or state before releasing the report. Um, and then, you know, the kind of kicker of that statement was, while the city might be comfortable placing asylum seekers on a site where toxins are present without a full understanding of whether it is safe, the state is not. Um, kind of stoking some tensions um, that had already been at least lingering uh, between the governor and the mayor. I mean, what do you think, Simone? Are we seeing signs here that the mayor and governor's relationship might be strained? I I absolutely think so. Uh, You know, what's interesting is, right, there are specifically when it comes to these camps, these winterized base camps, which was the idea for how we're going to house thousands of, of new arrivals to this city. You know, there has been so much back and forth. There was some before this sort of Brighton Park thing kind of exploded. There was some reporting out of the Tribune that said, actually, this idea for these winterized camps came from the Pritzker administration before Johnson even took office. And then you have Johnson announcing it. And then you have this back and forth over over environmental issues. And then you have Pritzker coming out and saying, you know, in response to the question, like, how are your how is your working relationship with Johnson? He says, oh, no, it's really good. And I'm like, yeah, sure. OK, that's, right. We 
Very believable. That's what we picked up on. Of yeah. Course. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get your opinion here, Angela. But at first, I, I want to hear a, a little clip from earlier this week. We invited Alderwoman Julia Ramirez of the 12th Ward, which includes Brighton Park, of course, onto the program to get her thoughts when the news broke about Pritzker's decision. Let's listen. The whole point is that if we would have had these conversations in October, based off of knowing, you know, that this site has been, you know, zoned for manufacturing, done this, the test before, we've, we would have given us, us um, ourselves enough time, two months worth of time. What do you think here, Angela? I mean, are, are there things that could have been done better throughout this process? Where do you start? <laughs> uh, listening to both, you know, Cohen and Simone here, I, I, I'll say, I'm sorry. Alisea, I guess. Alisea, uh, there's a back and forth. There's dueling narratives about what could have been done and when um, with both the governor and the mayor throwing shade at each other. So to understand the process of how this could have been done better, could it have been done better? Of course. I, I feel like we but I feel like to say who really is to blame at this moment is yeah. really unclear because of the, the dueling narratives about who was responsible for which part of this. They can't even agree who actually officially was doing this construction, mm -hmm. you know, who was really behind uh, the construction going with uh, Johnson's office saying, no, 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 it was the state that decided to move forward and the state saying, no, it was you. It's right. like, reminds me a little bit of my children in terms of <laughs> who was the first one to throw the punch. And it's a bit of a so capstone. True. I mean, some simmering tensions for months and months. I mean, earlier this year, uh, then uh, floor leader Carlos Ramirez Rosa called out the state for not doing their part. The state pushed back on that. Uh, and then last month, the state said, we're going to spend $160 million, um, to kind of basically come in here because the city isn't moving fast enough. Um, you know, that comes after months and months of, um, again, back and forth between the state and, and the city. How worried do you think, Simone, the, the governor is over how this migrant crisis could look when the national spotlight's on us next summer for right. the Democratic Convention? For the Democratic National Convention. I think, you know, I, I frankly, I actually think he's maybe less worried than, than Brandon Johnson is. Um, you know, I think Pritzker, uh, you know, when we when we look at sort of the unfolding of this, he gets to come out and say he gets to be on that side, as Quinn mentioned, of like, oh, well, we know it's toxic and we shut it down. You know what I mean? He gets to be able to say that, uh, you know, the state had to come in and, and help the city the of situation. Chicago. And especially when there's so much attention on the city of Chicago, so much negative attention on Chicago, there can be for for various uh, for various things. I think when you do have all these national politicians coming in um, for the governor to kind of be able to say, yeah, we have a handle on what's going on in our in our biggest city, um, I think makes gives him that posture that maybe then kind of uh, diminishes what what yeah. uh, Johnson's posture in that situation. I think optically the governor comes out looking yes, better. exactly. But the underlying issue of how are we going to house people through the cold winter has not changed. It right. still remains. Uh, and this, uh, the state said they're going to help the city stand up a shelter in Little Village to house up to 200 people. Uh, the Brighton Park site was supposed to house up to 2,000 mm -hmm. people. Um, and then there are still questions over uh, you know the, the proposed site at 115th and Halstead. Is that going to move forward? There have been environmental testings there. We still have not heard a definitive update from the administration on, I mean, on that site. That's what we're going to see, right? We're going to see some some maneuvering potentially by individuals who are concerned about having migrant housing in their property. The first thing I think we can expect from all of these sites going forward is an attempt to look at the environmental issues potentially in each site. Now, they're not all former industrial sites right. with... Yeah. 
names of sciencey things uh, on the land, um, but it certainly could slow down the process of trying to find sites that are viable right. when um, you know folks are wondering about environmental concerns. Well, Quinn, Portage Park is is getting a shelter at a former Catholic school. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah, um, and there was I think yesterday a, a very small protest about that, um, but I you know haven't seen too much news out of that. Um, well, and you know the city is uh, working with I believe seventeen churches to to kind of um, you know rapidly rehouse a lot of um, asylum seekers who are coming here. Um, that process is is ongoing. Um, but I was going to just say on your point. Basically, you know, there have been a whole series of lawsuits already about different sites. There was in Brighton Park. There is an ongoing one at a Ukrainian village brick and mortar shelter. I think it's safe to say that uh, any new proposed site might come with a lawsuit mm-hmm. and, you know, potentially a, a protest from neighbors, depending on, on the circumstances. What do you make of how the national media is portraying Chicago's response overall to the influx of, of migrants, Simone? You know, it's interesting because I think leading up to this point, there has kind of been a, a mix. I have seen. Um, some stories out of uh, out of places like New York that have said, well, actually, Chicago is dealing with this a lot better than we're dealing with it, it you know, over here. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know, you, national media always likes to take a look at whatever Chicago's doing, right? And they likes, sure to, do. likes to have opinions about it. Um, I think for us here, you know, Quinn, as you point out, fundamentally, we acutely feel that there are thousands of people who do not have housing and they need to be housed and it is getting cold. And, you know, on top of the other complications that we've mentioned so far with environmental concerns, neighborhood pushback, et cetera. And so, you know, I think we are just so acutely feeling the problem here that like it's hard to even compare or to or to say, you know, like, well, this city's doing this, this city's doing this. And and how is it all unfolding across the right. country. And where do we go from here? I don't know. Right. Uh, you know, I, I do think the governor kind of chastised the media a little bit when he's like, you're, you know, stoking the tensions mm. um, between him and, you know, which, uh, of course, he's going to say that. But I do I do think the lingering question is like, OK, after those headlines go away, where are we going to put people? And then, you know, next year are, are thousands of more people going to continue to be bused here? Yeah. Well, despite this Brighton Park site being put on hold, Mayor Johnson tried to assure everyone that he has plenty of other options. Let's listen. I've been planning for plan B, C, and D, and F, E, and F from the very moment that I became the mayor of the city of Chicago. And so whether it's 115th in Austin or 38th in California or any other brick and mortar location that we've identified that can serve the purpose of this mission, know that my administration is planning ahead. I mean, is that true? Does he have plenty of good alternatives, Angela? You know, every time we start writing about another location, you know, the city sends out a reminder that, like, look, we are putting up... We're opening new shelters. They claim what a rate of one a week or something like that is what was what they're telling. I do think there is a lot of movement happening constantly in small ways. We also, as you guys know, have an impending sixty-day shelter mm-hmm. uh, deadline, the time limit, a time limit that's coming in. So he's he's making some moves. He's putting some things into action. Um, at the same time that buses have somewhat slowed um, at this time period. So do I see a comprehensive plan A, B, D, C, F, E? I think it's the order that he <laughs> shared. I haven't seen it, but we do know that there's a lot of there's a lot of movement and it's a fast moving target. Um, we'll see. Yeah, there were going to be up to 2000 asylum seekers living there. I mean, how does that reflect on Mayor Johnson that he might have been moving people into a contaminated property? It just it just is a bad look. (laughs) There's really no two ways around it. Yeah, especially and especially when you had this lawsuit from Brighton Park neighbors that was alleging 
that there were environmental concerns at this site. You know, this wasn't necessarily like some of the other protests we saw in other neighborhoods where it was a matter of sort of like resources and resource management and who was getting resources. Right. This was this was explicitly uh, a concern that that neighbors had expressed that there were environmental concerns at this former industrial site. And then the whole unfolding of. Well, do you have this report? When is the report coming out? Oh, you have to FOIA. You have to file for the report. We're not just going to release it. It's 8 p.m. on a Friday. On a Friday. Like, it, it, it's just a, a bad look all around. A good old Friday news dump. Don't we love that, Oof. journalists? So tell us more, Quinn, about Brighton Park neighbors specifically and, and just how they're feeling about all this. I think they're um, elated. I mean, uh, Julia Ramirez, uh, when we reached her right after the state made their decision, uh, the older woman said she was just really, really happy the state stepped in. And um, I think neighbors feel emboldened. They feel like their um, actions kind of made this happen. Uh, and I think at least they're partially right. You know, um, I think they there was so much attention on this. Um, but let's not forget that a small group of neighbors did essentially attack all their woman, Julia Ramirez, in a protest here. Um, so, that you know, seems so long ago. It does, it, we've been through so many news cycles on this one site, and now it's coming to nothing. I, I would say neighbors um, feel emboldened, uh, and, you know, we could see similar types of, um, you know, actions, uh, not a protest necessarily, um, but, you know, similar types of uh, organizing against other sites. And so to sum that up, that the state EPA is going to do additional environmental tests of the site. I mean, any idea of how long that might take? In Brighton Park? Yeah. Oh, I have no idea. Yeah, I think we'll have to wait and see. If, But it seems like there will not be any people housed there. So tough week for, for Brandon Johnson. <laughs> Safe to say. Uh, he's also had a key ally say that he and the progressives weren't really ready to take over city government. What else did 20th Ward Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor have to say, Simone? Yeah, uh, Jeanette Taylor, very outspoken Alderwoman, um, one of the first uh, Democratic Socialists um, to to enter the city council. She just won her second term uh, earlier this spring. Um, and she was on the Ben Jarofsky show uh, last week and sort of saying that, you we've we've messed up here, progressive wing of <laughs> of City Hall like we. We, you know, and went on to say, you know, we should have been focused on getting this veto proof majority in the council. We shouldn't have been focusing on the fifth floor, shouldn't have been focusing on the mayor's office. And if we had, we'd be in a better situation, um, you know, sort of taking a couple shots at Johnson, saying that Johnson should be using his progressive allies on the council more as a sounding board, but that, you know, they're not as as involved or as they would like to be in what Johnson is planning. Um, and then also uh, sort of calling out her fellow alders, too, saying we're not out here organizing as much. We're trying to do it all behind a screen. Um, so she, I mean, always outspoken, uh, Alderwoman Taylor is, but was, uh, you know, I think really kind of honing in on this this concept that we talked a lot a lot about during election season, which was like, you know, what is the difference between organizing and governing, right? What do you, what happens when you finally get into office, you get into power, what has to change and how do you change your approach? Um, and uh, yeah, really, a really interesting interview, I think. Wow. And it, it was kind of a level of candor you almost never get from politicians mm -hmm. uh, in Chicago. And kudos to Ben Jarowski. I think he has a history of doing this. If you remember a couple of years ago, he had uh, then 10th Ward Alderwoman Sue Garza on his show when she publicly broke with Lightfoot and said Lightfoot was, you know, 
super hard to get. She didn't get along with anyone, and basically that made headlines then too. So mm-hmm. I think uh, he has a talent um, that I admire. That was further along into her term, though, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. That was almost. That was almost. That was about a year before the election. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. that I think that's one of the other points that um, folks have been making as well. That this is just first year yes uh troubles in the water uh from your own sort of wing first six really... months really are we yeah, uh, yeah. more or less april right yeah May? yeah May. yeah Oof. it's only it december and it comes after the mayor's hand-picked floor leader um was almost censured um by the city council you know that is a factor here too so it is um the some rocky waters three years uh, in chicago and this city <laughs> keeps me busy I, yeah <laughs> I think this is a, another sign, too, of, you know, the mayor has history on the county board, mm-hmm. a much more staid, much more limited sort of you, you don't have 50 council members coming and yelling at you. Right. It's a very different position mm-hmm. to uh, oversee a council, a, a city like this. So I think we're seeing some signs of of a different kind of previous experience that, um, you know, it's just not as used to dealing with so many people. Yeah. Well, sticking with the city council, Quinn, there's been criticism over new protocols for seating the public at council meetings. I understand that you've got a fresh update on this. A, a little bit. There has been some news on this uh, today, yeah, that um, uh, Mariah Wolfel has been reporting on for WBEZ. Um, but basically, if you've been to city council or cut, watched uh, council coverage over the past few few months it has been extremely hectic at times um you know in some ways threatening um if you'll remember during the um debates over the resolution to condemn hamas uh the entire gallery was cleared by the mayor um other times individual people have um you know been um taken out and basically um a few weeks ago uh the public was relegated to the third floor which if you've ever been to city council it is this totally isolated glassed in box essentially where you can't even see half of the alder people um and that got a lot of pushback from good government groups like the bga who said it was likely illegal to not let people um into the second floor gallery um and today we have seen some um you know, new uh, kind of rules finally published uh, on the city website for months or for weeks. We hadn't seen anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we certainly hadn't been approved by the full city council. But I guess this is going to essentially require reservations on the second floor. Um, and it's going to move all public comment unless um, you are not able to um, walk up there um, from the third floor. So all their people will not even be able to see most public commenters um, as they oh, hear wow. from them. And then, you know, something I've noticed quite the watch, watching the mayor is he he does uh, unlike perhaps past mayors, he is usually engaged in public comment and watching people speak. And I'm not sure he will even be able to see uh, who's ever speaking uh, weird. with this. Yeah, I think um, so. Mariah Wolfel from BC uh, first broke this story because she was really wondering about how safe and secure older persons were feeling and started that's how this story came about mm-hmm. um i know uh she started asking like how they felt and then got this interview with the sergeant of arms who was like oh by the way we're gonna make these policy changes mm-hmm. um so to finally see it get posted publicly and have potential fallout again yeah. from people being able to see the policy which had only been verbalized before yeah. um i think this is gonna, there's gonna be more to come Before the break, we got details on the governor's decision to halt construction of a migrant camp on the city's southwest side. But there's more news to cover, like the corruption trial of former alderman Ed Burke. This week, prosecution called on people who worked on the remodeling of the Burger King in Burke's ward. And I asked Angela what these witnesses shared with the jury. 
This was quite a week for the Burke trial because we're really getting closer to the details of the allegations against Burke. So to remind folks, if you haven't heard the million times that Sasha's described this. If you haven't been listening to the weekly news recap. Right. So he's accused of interfering um, in uh, permits and construction work, uh, other things, particularly in this this Burger King um, and sort of pressuring individuals to hire his private tax firm in order to keep construction, remodeling other projects in the city going. Um, in this particular case, they brought to the stand a couple of members of the Bur- Burger King um, sort of owner family who testified that um, you know they had some weird conversations with Burke and his staff. I think weird is maybe even one of the words, maybe an exact, but it, the, the descriptions were, you know, he's, he's calling about uh, permits and um, and making sure things are going okay, and then drops in an, a note of like, but remember, you were going to talk to me about my private tax business. Mm. And one of the um, Burger King owner uh, individuals says, you know, they were just sort of taken aback by such such a comment and actually asked him to repeat it. Like, come again? Can you say that again? Um, and which he did. Um, so the, the, the prosecution called them to the stand to basically say that they had never heard this kind of talk from an alderman before in projects that they have done and that they felt that uh, and and work ultimately was stopped on the remodeling of the Burger King for quite some time. Right, right. Um, and so there there was this feeling that they had that there was pressure and that if they had just hired his tax firm, which they didn't, uh, to do this work, then maybe the work stoppage wouldn't have happened. We also saw the former building commissioner testify, too. Right. What did she say? Yeah. You know, she was sort of giving these sort of limited, like limited dealings with Burke. And it's mostly, you know, we just talk in the hallway and things like that. So it's um, we just said hello. Yeah. In yeah. The hallway. You know, it, the the idea here is that aldermen are not supposed to have purview. Um, ultimately, it's supposed to be the city that gets to make a choice of when construction is stopped and not. So the commissioner was sort of laying out the rules, not so much about Burke specifically. Uh, and there were other people who were called, but uh, to sort of explain what the rules are supposed to be. And the the deal is aldermen are not supposed to be able to stop construction. And and the defense made a big show of sort of saying this to the different members whose work did get stopped. Like, why didn't you go over? Why didn't you bring your paperwork? Clearly, you could have gone over to ninth floor. You could have gotten this fixed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the owner's like, I didn't know I needed to do that. <laughs> right. You know, it's an example, an allegation here that when you have an alderman with this much power and this much sway, that even the implication that you're supposed to do this weighed heavily and weighs heavily on individuals. We go back to the central question. And these are all allegations. He's innocent until proven guilty. But we come back to the central allegation of how much power does an alderman have mm-hmm. in their ward and the idea that. Maybe it's too much. And it's really a glimpse into the Chicago way. You know, I mean, it's it, we kind of we take it for granted that someone like Ed Burke could hold up a, a driveway permit. Right. That Of course he could. But as you said, it, this is actually not how it's supposed to work. And, you know, I thought when um, some of the wiretap tape that they played for the jury uh, when, um, you know, with the Burger King company officials uh, and Burke says, hey, we we're going to talk about the real estate uh uh, representation and oh yeah you were going to have someone get in touch with me so we could expedite your permits that is a pretty for for the prosecutors that is a, a really important piece of tape mm-hmm. um we'll see how that plays out and you know at the defense is obviously trying to poke as many holes in it as yeah the defense they called their first witness to the stand it was uh, an employee of burke's law firm 
Yes. Briefly tell us what she said. We're a little out of order there, and this had to do with um, someone getting sick. Um, and okay. so there was a, not we, we're not out of order. We're all in order right here. Not you, <laughs> Sasha. Okay. Um, no, they they were calling because there was a uh, it was a conflict, and so uh, there was some illness or something like that that this person had to do with, so they gave permission. You don't normally call a defense witness at this point. Yeah. Prosecution is not finished. So just laying that out for folks. Gotcha. That that's, that that's what that was about. So here's a glimpse, if you will, into some of the defense that we expect to come. And that and that was uh, Gabri- Gabriela Garcia Martinez. Um, she's an employee of Burke's law firm, and she was there to sort of talk about no, look, look. There's no, there's no conflict here. We have a screening process. We make sure that if there's any conflicts of interest, that um, that, that that's you know we we're, that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little bit of a taste of what what we're going to potentially see. The defense is going to say no. There are lots of um, none of these were these were just conversations. These were not direct requirements. These mm-hmm. were not. It's okay to ask someone for business. It was never a requirement. Former alderman turned FBI mole Danny Solis is expected to hit the witness stand next week as well. But uh, he's going to be called as a witness for the defense and not the prosecution. Is that right? Yes. I'm getting three nods <laughs> around the table. Uh, is is this what local political junkies have, have been waiting for, Simone, to, to hear from Danny Solis? That's certainly what I'm waiting for. <laughs> I want to know what he's going to say, especially especially as a as a as a witness for the defense, I think. Right. Like it's so interesting because prosecutors have really based their case around the information that former Alderman Solis was able to gather. Right. While wearing, uh, you know, while wearing a wire and doing all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet prosecutors kind of want to stay away from him, you know, in part because, right, the reason that they have him is because of other allegations of corruption on his part, right? And so it becomes this, like, you know, sort of Ouroboros of of corruption. And so the defense can call him up and sort of say, well, business as usual, here's what we can kind of poke at and here's what we can kind of of get to. But I'm I'm really curious to hear kind of just what happens. And don't forget, I mean, Solis is a player in the upcoming Madigan trial. Right. So how much, how much, you know, is this, is this could be this prosecutors not wanting to show their full hand? I mean, obviously it's different people, different circumstances. Um, But I I do think that that is a Mm. hovering over as even a bigger corruption trial uh, that's supposed to start in the spring. Yeah. I think. I mean, I think their main concern about calling Solis, so prosecution made clear that they were not going to do it themselves, is he's got a deal, mm-hmm. right? Uh, he's got a history. And um, they've got the tapes. So the best evidence that they potentially have are the actual tapes be- between individuals. Yeah. Calling an individual up um, is always potentially scary in case they say something you don't want them to say. Mm-hmm. Um, so the tapes are sort of irrefutable. Not irrefutable, but they are what they are. They are the facts, yeah. if you will. Um, but so, calling an individual so makes sense. As, as prosecutors are moving towards wrapping up their case, I mean, mm-hmm. sum this up. How strong do you think it is? Oh, you know, as a journalist, I can't uh, weigh in on such uh, yay or nay. Um, I, I do think this past week is some of the strongest evidence. It's the strongest evidence. You said it, Quinn. That tape um, of like sort of... It's it's sort of a show me the money moment, and we had not gotten to that point yet. I think some of the issues the state is facing is that time and time again, the defense is saying, but they didn't pay up, did mm-hmm. they? They didn't hire him, did they? Yeah. And these projects still went forward. But the Burger King case may be their strongest one yet for how long they were able to shut the remodel down, the mayor's office, I'm sorry, <laughs> Burke's office stepping in um, and affecting business. All right, Quinn, let's turn to some other law enforcement issues. Uh, The City Council's Committee on Workforce Development had a pretty controversial vote. 
They did. Um, we are in the midst of an extension, a proposed extension of the um, police contract, basically for rank and file officers, which are, are who are represented by the Fraternal Order of Police, by far the city's largest union. Um, you know, there are two parts of this, and it's interesting. So usually uh, the city council will ratify a contract of any kind as one piece. Um, this is getting kind of split into two pieces. There's the bulk of the contract, which includes basic stuff like raises and benefits. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is the so-called arbitration measure, um, which, uh, you know, everyone has been reporting on. Um, basically, uh, a independent arbiter earlier this year said that um, FOP members uh, should have the um, option to go to private arbitration behind closed doors on um, the most serious misconduct cases instead of going to the police board. At least they would have the choice. Um, the okay. city and police reform advocates are aghast at this. They're saying this would totally do away with a very important layer of accountability and oversight. So basically that's why the Johnson administration and their labor uh, negotiators are asking city council to reject the arbitration part while also approving the regular contract stuff. And that's what happened yesterday in the workforce I mean, this sounds like a significant change. It could be. And, you know, ultimately, it will likely end up in the courts. I mean, there's this process where if city council gets 30 votes to reject the arbitration measure, it would go back to the arbiter who would then send it back for another vote. But basically, it could be decided in the Cook County Circuit Court. Um, in the meantime, um, there was no discussion in committee about the 5% uh, pay bump that cops are said to receive under this in 20 uh, next year and oh, 2025 right. um you know so in some ways this has taken a lot of attention off if it had just been the police contract i'm sure more progressive older people would have spoken out and say are we really going to give the police um you know these large uh raises instead their ire was uh perhaps rightfully so focused on the arbitration mm. police board uh dispute simone let's stick with police for a moment the head of the chicago police department's civilian oversight panel is urging police to ease restrictions on vehicle chases. So uh, why does he want those speed limits? Well, it's actually it's actually a different thing, right? So so what what Anthony Driver, the head of the um, uh, Community Commission on Public Safety and Accountability, has said was we should there are these restrictions on when police officers can engage in a vehicle chase, right? And what he has said is we actually need to ease some of those restrictions. He and other police officials um, are sort of on agreement on this, and it's because of a rash of armed robberies that is taking place. Driver himself having been the victim of a robbery uh, as well. Mm. And it, it's so interesting that this is coming up as we're talking about accountability in the police contract as well, because the whole reason that these limits were put in place was because people get injured when when cars start when when you have car chases right and so they created this Chicago taxpayers have paid tens of millions to pedestrians and motorists killed or injured during police pursuits yes absolutely and so you have this very strict test for officers to decide is it okay for me to chase is it not for me to chase and if you make that less strict does that mean we're going to be paying out more in settlements does that mean more people are going to get injured not to mention just sort of general concerns that I think folks might have about you know just how aggressive are police being mm -hmm. um, and so it's this it's this it's kind of a weird situation where you have this sort of police oversight panel that's actually calling for you know to ease those restrictions um, and there's a question about if they even can do that or yeah, the do they have the power right they they don't actually quite know yet well, do we know where superintendent Snelling stands on this um, you know, I, I actually have asked, and this has been a huge topic all fall as we've seen this, uh, as you said, rash of robberies all over the city. Um, I, at his uh, confirmation here, I asked him, you know, what are your thoughts on the uh, vehicle pursuit policy? 
he said, look, there's a balancing test and uh, our officers go through it. He didn't kind of give a definitive answer. Um, but uh, Alderman Gil Villegas has introduced a measure. I don't think it's gone anywhere so far in city council last month uh, asking the superintendent to rescind the current rules and establish a new clear objective pursuit guidelines that, quote, weigh the seriousness of the offenses um, with due consideration for the safety of the public. Pretty vague language, but. You know, he's kind of it shows that he's trying to maybe push some action on this, some kind of uh, revision here. All right. We don't have a lot of time left, so I want to turn to good news. Right. Uh, Chicago's union stations getting millions of dollars for upgrades. What, what are they going to spend the money on, Simone? They're going to spend the money on a few different things. They're going to renovate their ventilation system, which, of course, I think in a uh, sort of post pandemic world, um, folks are folks are excited about, but also uh, expanding platforms uh, to um, increase capacity for uh, Amtrak uh, and Metro. This is something that um, our Congress uh, people um, have pushed for uh, this this sort of just big transportation expansion. And I think, you know, Union Station Central, uh, big, big train hub we are here in Chicago. Big so I think um, they're very excited, although they were they were actually initially looking for more in this initial. They did want more money. Right. About 250 million instead have about 95 million dollars. But you know, with transportation funding, <laughs> transportation, you know, they're, they're, it's always kind of tough to say, like, what round you're going to get, you know, the funding when. So yeah. uh, we'll, take what we'll you can get for now. For, for sure. So for those who are driving instead of taking the train, I have good news for you, too. The Kennedy Expressway lanes are about to be fully reopened. Yay. Woo-hoo. After nine months of construction. Who's excited? I'm excited. I am. I'm very I have friends excited. in Jefferson Park who reopened for now. Seeing me. I, I believe that uh, construction is wow. coming yeah. back. Thanks, right Quinn. Now. Quinn. Block Club. Block Club's headline in our newsletter yesterday was "The nightmare is over," and which I thought was funny, but also you know the nightmare will return. Yeah, yeah. next spring they will resume for the next phase of Kennedy construction. Thanks, Quinn. <laughs> uh, for those auto lovers who feel the need for speed, the NASCAR Street Race is on track to return over the Fourth of July weekend. Once again, I will be out of town. Uh, tickets to the event went on sale Wednesday. Has anyone here bought a ticket for NASCAR? Uh, I have not. Angela, uh, is, no. I think I'm busy. <laughs> I-, I won't be here. I think I'm busy preparing <laughs> for the DNC at that time. Yeah, that's a good. Oh, that's true. That's true. Um, it's yeah. going to be an interesting year. That's wild. That's well, wild that that's yeah. real quick, if you, if you are looking for plans or something to do this weekend, I got to let you know, you might want to head down to the Chicago River to try out the new hot tub boats. They were unveiled today. That's right. Hot tub boats. I don't know if you've seen those little blue electric boats that are on the river in the summer. Well, the Chicago Electric Boat Company has transformed two of them into floating hot tub boats. And they fit six people. They come with a handful of rules, including the captain's got to be over 21 and they have to remain sober during the trip. What what happens when the river freezes over? Are, are you are you given an ice pick? I'm just thinking about safety. Through? It's you can't. I I uh, in prep for this day, I read <laughs> about the hot tubs and learned they will not operate when the when the lake mm. is frozen. Mm. And they they're, they're uh, going to they're going to be the like best. real close to the shore, real close. They'll be operating in March. Look, so folks, it gives us a lot of time to make our reservation. Look, folks, if you really <laughs> want to have this experience, I got like a like a pontoon and I'm just throw I'll throw <laughs> some stuff in there. You pay me $300. <laughs> I will find some hot some hot pads or something. I love it. (laughs) All right, that is it for the recap. My thanks to WBEZ's Angela Rosa O'Toole, Simone Alisea of CityCast Chicago, Quinn Myers of Block Club Chicago. Wishing you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you for stopping by. Thanks so much. Thanks. 
This episode was produced by Andrea Guffman, and it was edited by Linnea Dominic and Max Lubers. Every Friday, Reset hosts WBEZ's weekly news recap, and we host conversations with newsmakers throughout the week, breaking down the stories that matter most to Chicago. You can check out our full catalog of interviews by heading over to wbez.org slash reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Enjoy your weekend, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.